welcome to Trunk Church. Come drink the blood of God with us. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Cosima B. Concordia. And my name is Aurora Leiborn. Okay. Um, so how do we want to start out today? Let's just start with working through this Sontag essay. Um, how did you even find this essay? Like, how did you come across it? I've read a lot of her work, and I do a lot of political philosophy, embarrassingly enough. There's a lot of things I've never heard of, but I've never heard of this. And even finding it, like, I'm technically a researcher and like you had to tell me like where it was so I could find it so I'm not sure where I heard of it first it was either on the podcast why are people into that on the episode between Tina Horn and J.B. Brager and it was like the fascism episode so so talking um Mm -hmm. and other than that I had someone message me in the dms like when I mentioned Sontag at some point talking about how Sontag had like written about being terrified of BDSM because it took the logics of desire and sex to its conclusion. <laughs> um, <laughs> and uh, and yeah, that's basically, I think, is a good description of fascinating fascism. Um, that's the really polemic last paragraph in a, to a T, I would say. Yeah. Of course, it made sense to really quickly go from, I guess not really quickly, we've been pacing ourselves. Life's been throwing things at us or pushing us downstairs. Um, But like (laughs) the logic of why we decided that we needed to talk about fascism and queerness and its relationship to fascism. I mean, I think all of the things that we've talked about so far, like erotism and like these religious drives to be outside yourself and like Bataille's desire for like a Marxist myth. All of those things are fundamentally tied up with the historical reality of fighting fascism and the reality of fascism as this force versus leftist like communism or whatever. And that fascism has such an intense understanding of like theater and myth that really taps into something like I think really deep and like humankind. And I think like we can see how a huge amount of Bataille's project and Anne Lore's project is to think about how to have those things in a non-fascist way, basically, in a non-totalizing way, in a way that doesn't produce just more fascist thought, but at the same time speaks to this, like I think, very deep human drive. The drive for community, the drive for beauty. Yeah, extreme feeling (laughs) those Mm -hmm. drives I thought that I would enjoy reading this more than I did yeah I think like the last four pages of it are are pretty (laughs) are pretty good but um the beginning yeah I don't know I and and I have I have mixed feelings about the entire essay and we'll have a lot of critical things to say about it but yeah it definitely finishes much stronger than it began (laughs) Just take a minute to introduce 
Sontag's work. She's a very famous literary and social critic. I think her most noted piece, or the one that I think first comes to mind, is Against Interpretation. And then her work on illness as metaphor, and especially AIDS as metaphor. Mm -hmm. And regarding the pain of others. Regarding the pain of others, yes. She just is one of those people that's like a genius, and I'd always been taking like lots of different classes all at once. I think she might have even sat in on J.L. Austin's lectures, the lectures that became How to Do Things with Words, but I could totally be crossing my wires <laughs> with that one. I have no idea who that is. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> uh, it's, totally, it's totally okay. Um, but her relationship with the queer community is also pretty fraught. She was an avid journaler, we have a lot of really excellent autobiographical work from her. She's a really amazing prose writer. So that's a little bit that I know on Sontag. Yeah, I've definitely never delved into any of her biographical information, but I have heard that certainly like rumors of her queerness or repressed queerness. Beginning with fascinating fascism, do you want to give a brief summary of it? We can, we can work through it together. So fascinating fascism really starts delving into the phenomena of fascists post-World War II that, or Nazis <laughs> explicitly, that attempted to kind of rehabilitate their image away from Nazism and specifically focusing on Riefenstahl, who was the biggest propagandist in Germany below Gabel, and she was responsible for documentaries like The Triumph of the Will. So she was like very much complicit in the horrors that came out of the Nazi regime, and not only complicit, but, but like a, a main player. But um, it's talking about how later in her life, she then attempted to move away from that and made this piece of art about the Nuba people, who are a tribe in Africa as this way to be like um, this kind of ethnographic art that like became quite big in the US. But like Sontag's point is that the logic behind it is still foundationally a fascist logic. So although the Nuba are black, not Aryan, Riefenstahl's portrait of them evokes some of the larger themes of Nazi ideology. The contrast between the clean and the impure, the incorruptible and the defiled, the physical and the mental, the joyful and the critical. So there's always this idea of this kind of like basic fascist idea of returning to myth is this returning to pre-civilization, this returning to a before when things were simple, when before civilization marred everything. And then civilization is associated with Jewishness, it's associated with queerness, which is, you know, devious and a corruption of this like purity. So within this piece of art that she makes about the Nuba people, it's still very regressive, still like foundationally about portraying them as this kind of like ideal physical specimens of perfection that you get before you leave the garden, right? Before you're destroyed by civilization and that like women know their place and all of these other like base ideologies. So Sontag really tries to trace how fascism functions within art, even outside of explicitly fascist work. 
So she names films like 2001 Space Odyssey and Disney's Fantasia, which for me, I'm not surprised if you want to call that one fascist, because it is just highlighting a very particular notion of what music is and what musical beauty is and what musical form and order ought to be. And it's espousing a fascist ideal. She also later says that um, Triumph of the Will and Reefenstahl's other documentary uh, that are that they're like some of the best and most like engaging documentaries ever made. But they also are not documentaries in that they don't engage with history. Like they're not interested in the real. They're like pure propaganda machines. I think she does give them credit for what they are, but it's not because Riefenstahl is like this artistic genius, but that it's foundationally playing on these like human drives that are really pernicious and bad. Mm-hmm. So she says fascist art glorifies surrender. It exalts mindlessness. It glamorizes death. Mm-hmm. This is a little bit of a longer quote. So to an unsophisticated public in Germany, the appeal of Nazi art may have been that it was simple, figurative, emotional, not intellectual, a relief from the demanding complexities of modernist art. To a more sophisticated public, the appeal is partly to that avidity, which is now bent on revitalizing all the styles of the past, especially the most pilloried. As pieces of propaganda, it's remarkable what they've achieved. So when Sontag says that they're brilliant documentaries, I mean, look what they've accomplished. <laughs> then as like as films themselves, are you going to sit at home and like pop some popcorn and hang out <laughs> pop a <laughs> reef install film on and enjoy it? Probably not. Absolutely not. <laughs> yeah. Well, well it's, I think I think I, you know, obviously in scale it's it's not comparable. Um, but like I think about, you know, one of those like online things like the pandemic. <laughs> that went around, which, you know, was like COVID-19 denialism and kind of like, you know, QAnon all mixed up stuff. And, you know, it's not that that was good, but it was a good propaganda film. It was effective, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I think her work is remarkable in that it did the terrible things that it did and that it has ought to be critiqued as such. It seems very strange, and maybe this is what Sontag is getting at, to want to watch one for its artistic merits. That just seems insane to me. It seems insane to me. But I also have a hard time accepting mm. those arguments about, about any kind of art, that it's possible to take it from its history, which is what's so confusing about the very conservative approach that Sontag takes to S&M because she takes it away from its history. Mm-hmm. We'll get into that in a second, I think. <laughs> because, yeah, I have a lot to say about that. But, um, <laughs> so, like, the other thing that she's getting at, though, is that there's this idea that Nazism is this realm of, like, Britishness and terror. But Sontag says, like, this is not true. That fascism, more broadly, stands in for an ideal or ideals that are persistent under other banners. So for instance, the ideal of life as art, the cult of beauty, the fetishism of courage, the dissolution of alienation in ecstatic feelings of community, the repudiation of the intellect and the family of man. So I think like, <laughs> it's very easy to see how in contemporary times, how you know a huge amount of American culture 
is very profoundly fascist in many, many different ways, where there's a super fetishism of soldiers and cops and like everything is super idealized. And also there's this idea that like this really intense anti-intellectualism, I think, that is pretty pervasive across the right. What makes fascist art appealing is that it doesn't make you have to think about it in the way that modern art makes you think about it. The appeal of Nazi art being that it is not intellectual at all versus any kind of modern art or any kind of art that isn't just reliant on beauty where you have to form an opinion about what it's doing and your relationship to what it's doing versus, oh, that's a a sculpture of um, someone with bulging muscles. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. This actually might be helpful framing, is that the essay is in two parts. The first being a critique of the book that you were mentioning about the Nubo people by um, Lene Riefenstahl, and then the second being this book titled SS Regalia that she sees just at an airport magazine stand. Yeah, do you want to talk about SS Regalia a little bit? Sure. And I will be honest, the way that she introduces it, it was really confusing to me about what kind of photographs and what kind of book this was, because the way that people have presented historical images, I think, has been very irresponsible in the past, where you're showing these really intense photographs of soldiers in action or of dead bodies or of extreme acts of violence, like executions, just without context in a book. And this one... It seems the SS regalia is kind of a genealogy of the uniform, despite the fact that she mentions that it has a like a stripe across the armband that is supposed to like supposed to be some kind of censorship. So it says like over a hundred million four color photographs, only two ninety five, and it's in part deference censorship, which is on the cover of pornographic magazines over the model's genitalia. And I I I didn't quite understand why because it was they were photographs of uniforms suddenly they're immediately imbued with eroticism or why because she makes a distinction between general fantasies about uniforms and uniforms themselves and then uniforms and books about uniforms organized with all this meticulous detail about the dates that certain uniforms were brought into commission and the kinds of insignia that were used in the uniforms. But somehow this book itself becomes this very erotic, very sexual object. I just felt like she needed more there. I I felt like she wasn't doing very good history with why the Nazis styled themselves the way that they did or why even fashion mirrors like Nazi regalia, because, and this is something I was eager to hear your reaction about. So the regalia, do you know who designed it? Uh, No, I do not. Hugo Boss. I know very little about Hugo Boss. (laughs) Oh, same, except that he designed Nazi uniforms and then he went on to design menswear. Mm -hmm. So... All in the family. (laughs) All in the family, yep, yep. But that she's going after extreme sex or queer sex acts and not, like, normativity and normalization. Because I can't think of anything that is more, like, the shift from making Nazi uniforms and 
designing the Nazi look and then suddenly making the uniforms that the nine to five businessman wears. So they're menswear. It seems that there's something more scary and more dangerous happening there with that subtle shift of the rehabilitation of Hugo Boss. And suddenly Hugo Boss is a household name and your dad has, he's wealthy, maybe in a certain time, in a certain era, had had a Hugo Boss shirt, um, is more horrifying than a ton of queers donning leather. That to me is scary. Well, and isn't that the aesthetic of, of the new of like neo-nazis today you know yep. like where clean cut. yeah very clean cut very um you know the exact person that with in the u.s you know has access to everything because no one questions them and new york times gives them these weird profiles because oh well we have to listen to their views because they look very look like a nice young boy mm-hmm the fact you could probably, if you're dressed business casual and if you're a white man, just ghost into any situation <laughs> unnoticed. Yeah, I think that's a really, really fascinating insight that I didn't think about. And I, I really love that. I, I really love the idea of um, American business culture as actually the extension, the true spiritual mm-hmm. extension of a Nazi aesthetic. Um, totally, and- no, totally. Yeah. I was really disappointed that she didn't mention it. She didn't mention Hugo Boss's connections with designing that aesthetic or like why she wasn't thinking about fashion, mainstream fashion. Why did she go to the niche and then start critiquing that? Or why is she so afraid of that? That's not where all the power is. The power are the business people, all these, um, uh, these yuppies. Yuppies are the extension. Uh, what did you make of this? Did you have anything to say about the SS Regalia book? It is very fascinating that she ends up going into gay leathermen. And and that is the real reason that we're talking about this essay is, is that the real focus at the end of Fascinating Fascism are the S&M practices of gay leathermen and how there is certainly like this reminiscence of a fascist aesthetic in some ways. So um, in the sex shops, the baths, the leather bars, the brothels, people are dragging out their gear. But why? Why has Nazi Germany, who was a sexually repressive society, become erotic? How could a regime which persecuted homosexuals become a gay turn-on? I think the thing about this that that is so funny is is that like just like that person you know who told me about this essay like by saying it, it's basically an essay about how Sontag is terrified of BDSM because it takes like desire to its conclusion it really it really does feel like that this was written in I think the early 80s and so her understanding of like leather culture was still probably very very new and very very basic <laughs> And so it really was this very like surface level response to what that could mean. And I think that Sontag is quite brilliant and does make a few insights about how play within leather communities functions, but at the same time, really, really misses pretty dramatically in other ways. So she delves into sadomasochism and and she does get some things right. So for instance, she says like sadomasochism, of course, does not just mean people hurting their sexual partners, which has always occurred and generally means men beating up women. That like S&M is not just abuse. Like that is, she understands that, which is definitely 
an important basic thing to get. So she like talks about Dassault a little bit, which is which is really fascinating and and how like Dassault created this theater of cruelty and what that accomplished as far as this kind of like work of testing the bounds of desire and by directly linking them with death and defilement and like really taking it to its logical conclusion. She's basically saying that like gay leathermen have perfected Dassault's theater of cruelty and have taken it and made it accessible to everyone. And she she also even, she references Bataille in this essay, which I think is really fun. As the social contract seems tame in comparison with war, so fucking and sucking come to seem merely nice and therefore unexciting. The end to which all sexual experience tends, as Bataille insisted in a lifetime of writing, is defilement, blasphemy. To be nice as to be civilized means being alienated from the savage experience, which is entirely staged. So, like, I do think that the insight that, like, BDSM is taking something essential about desire and it's taking it as far as we can take it without actually going into, like, horrible shit... (laughs) But, like, the problem is, is that she, like, doesn't actually understand how leather communities functions. So, like, she says, sadomasochism has always been the furthest reach of the sexual experience. When sex becomes most purely sexual, that is severed from personhood, from relationships, from love. It should not be surprising that it has become attached to Nazi symbolism in recent years. Never before was the relation of masters and slaves so consciously aestheticized. Saad had to make up his theater of punishment and delight from scratch, improvising the decor and costumes and blasphemous rites. Now there is a master scenario available to everyone. The color is black. The material is leather. The seduction is beauty. The justification is honesty. The aim is ecstasy. The fantasy is death. So, um, I mean, those those last lines are, are some of them are incredibly good. Um, and where it seems like she really gets it. But then also this idea that, um, that S&M is entirely detached from personhood and from relationships and from love is number one a very strange demonization and almost kind of like a homophobia around uh like around I think like the idea that um that like people hook up (laughs) that like S&M happens outside like often happens outside of relationships like cruising culture um which which is and was very common within um within gay leatherman scenes. And so I think, uh, but associating that with um, a lack of personhood and a lack of, um, a lack of love is just so misled because the entire point of BDSM is that you're really truly listening to what a person wants and you're negotiating it and, um, and then really believing that they say they want what they want. And then you're recreating that within a space where you have safeguards um, if someone needs to uh, needs to stop. And so, like, like obviously, um, abuse and harm is, um, 
or or harm can happen i think any any time there's any sort of contact between two human beings harm is always a potentiality even if everyone does everything right because that's just part of the reality of of moving through the world it's not more pervasive and if anything like what bdsm is doing or what it should do in theory is that it is pointing to the power that already exists in all relationships because power is all around us and it's pointing to it and it's making it visible and then it's playing with that power whereas opposed to like normal relationships like the vast majority of people in the world there are all types of power dynamics and all all types of power like wealth differential gender um and like race just so many different types of things that are always at play but often are com- are left completely unacknowledged and then um are much more likely to do harm because you're not able to like account for them you're not able to discuss what desire is you're not able to discuss how those things cause harm and um and i think one of the things that snm really does that that is so um off-putting to so many people is that it's a recognition that desire is not something that we are in control of desire is something that is beyond us and that we're not deciding what turns us on something that also really bothered me about her approach to SM communities is the quote of course most people who are turned on by ss uniforms are not signifying approval of what the nazis did if indeed they have more than the sketchiest idea of what that might be as though queers are not very very good at history and don't really really understand power dynamics and as though there wasn't a huge loss of queer history as a result of nazi atrocities like, she has no gauge whatsoever on the community or the community's knowledge of what's at stake. And then she makes all of these very, like, ahistorical claims. And this is going back then to the last paragraph. Like, what I also, like, there are bits and pieces of that that are, like, beautiful and powerful, like the last line. And then how she, of course, as you mentioned, she totally misses the point. And I'm curious to know how you feel or what you think about this. So when she said that Saad had to make up his theater of punishment, that to me, is just such a crazy claim that Saad invented anything from scratch, that Saad wasn't also connected to a history of the figure of, like, the Libertine or, like, the Earl of Rochester or the notion of blasphemy and making it sexual or of military force or of, like, subverting sovereign power in a, um, like, in order to make it both like comedic, but then also hot. <laughs> Why do we imagine that Saad was like the first person to like whip someone out <laughs> uh, and write about it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely, you're absolutely right about that. It's definitely giving to Saad too much credit. I spent some time falling down like a history hole where I was thinking about libertines and libertines as just like subverting power and as being against that notion of sovereignty. So the thing about Saad is he ends up always somehow getting appropriated by the powers that be, probably because he was, um, like, he was titled, like, he, the reason why he was able to accomplish what he accomplished in his life and to do all the things that he did and to write about it was because he was so well-connected and because he was, like, a wealthy white man. Like, he wasn't a genius, he wasn't special, he just happened to get away with it and then happened to write about it. <laughs> It's true. It's really true. And he did terrible things to other human beings. 
the fact that she's not self-critical enough to question her own rehabilitation of Saad, who literally kidnapped people and, like, non-consensually physically mutilated them, like, by cutting into them and pouring wax into their wounds. Like, Jesus Christ. Uh, but yeah, Saad's dates were the late 1700s and early 1800s, but, like, the Earl of Rochester, that was in the 1600s. You have figures like Voltaire. You have... Like, even Bosch, so the Garden of Earthly Delights, was probably painted between 1490 and 1510. And there's already a lot of weird, kinky sex stuff happening there uh, in an idealized way, in the kind of way that the art that she's afraid of is presenting to us, and to divorce it from that history just seems strange to me. This isn't even getting into the queering of it. And of course, a lot of Nazi aesthetics or a lot of the push or the desire for myth-making that Nazis had, it was inspired by Rome. So figures like Caligula. Uh, and yeah, I just, I thought that was a huge oversight and it bothered me a lot. So I went to Leatherful, Radical Sex, People, Politics, and Practice, edited by Mark Thompson. It's, it's an anthology. Um, it's just one of the classics originally published in 1991. And I think uh, some of the essays have aged much, much better than others. Um, there's certainly some, what I think we could say, problematic things in, in, a, in a few of these essays, but they're also deeply insightful and beautiful stuff in here. Um, and so went here, like, because most of them are by Leatherman as a kind of response to some talks. So, so like, number one, like, just from the introduction, so written by Thompson, Leather folk looking at the brutal acts of dominance and submission that are carried out in America every day know that in such rapacious and non-consensual acts lie the real sadomasochism that plagues our time. In our audacious explicating of society's roles and violent tensions, leather folk mirror the deadly games that a culture dishonest with itself plays. Perversion, in this case, is a symptom of the beholder. I know this is true from personal experience. When I admitted to my own interest in S&M, two things happened. My sense of humor improved and I became more socially aware. Radical sex ritual, I learned, is not only about the exploration of rage and loss, but can be a way towards joy. We're also going to return to leather folk often throughout this podcast. There's a lot of really interesting stuff about the tie of S&M to religious experience and practice that feels incredibly relevant to us. But um, like, I think it's also important to understand how, how like we haven't fully delved into like the porn wars or, or like any of the lesbian culture wars. And I'm sure we will at some point in the show, but um, suffice to say that like leather folk have not been treated well and have been demonized very badly and usually like associated with the oppressors on many different instances. And it's because of this refusal to shirk away from the existence of power. So in The Hanged Man by Scott Tucker, he writes, this dogma is simple and absolute. Power is evil. They argue S&M reflects mm -hmm. real existing power in the world. Often true, but they do not acknowledge that power can be refracted through play like light through a prism. They imagine some ultimate utopia where power and S&M both vanish like bad dreams. But just as I can't imagine a world without light, so I can't imagine a world without power. Power doesn't simply oppress people. 
It also empowers them to act in freedom. And also power takes countless forms, but some purists pretend that only tyrants and mass murderers would choose to play with power. Much of sports and politics, much of art and daily life is based on negotiating different degrees of power. Leather sex and S&M can be ritual exaggerations of such power plays. They can be both purging and clarifying. It is simplistic to insist that all S&M play leads down the slippery slope to rape, murder, and fascism. And I think that another reason that I think Leathermen in particular, you know, have been associated with fascism is because of this kind of ideal of this like hyper-masculinity, which in many ways was this reclamation of power and this eroticization of it. But then at the same time, like mainstream leather culture very much attempted to actively reject some of the most toxic aspects of, you know, like kind of femphobia. Um, in Drummer Magazine, which was one of the biggest Leatherman magazines, there was this leather or this letter <laughs> that was written in about how um, you appreciated Drummer so much because it created this thing that showed that like gay men could be men, right? That they didn't have to be these like sissy faggots, right? And Drummer Magazine wrote back and was like, okay, absolutely not. Like we have more in common with them. We are closer to the sissies than you might think. Like we are the same people. But at the same time, like <laughs> there is a lot of issues in S&M community, just like there is anywhere else about people being incredibly careless about the ways that symbols are used. And so there's an essay called Swastika Toys <laughs> by Arnie Kantrowitz. And so he's a Jewish leatherman. And he talks about the phenomena of leathermen that use the swastika as this ultimate taboo imagery um, and eroticize it in these like really intense ways. And his conclusion is definitely that like you should not wear a swastika. You should not wear Nazi regalia. Like that is not okay. <laughs> but um, he also complicates it and talks about how these interactions he's had with like gay Jewish leathermen who have swastikas on their body or do participate in this like ritualized play around Nazism that is replication of the Holocaust. And like this is the same problem with race play where it can be an excuse for a recreation of really horrific racism if it's white people you know just like recreating these like drives but at the same time a denial of it existing or like a complete saying like if people do this at all then they're bad people is like denying the fact that different people have different desires and desires are not always the thing that is correct and we often have great shame around them it's also that People don't literally want the things that they desire sometimes. Sometimes the desire is encapsulating or allowing them to do something else. So someone that wants to, for example, and I'm going to stay in my lane here with this example. For example, a survivor who is engaging in aspects of, of rape play isn't wishing or desiring to get raped again. Or even someone who isn't a survivor, like who's engaging in rape play they're creating a safe place for them to fulfill those fantasies 
and they are literally that fantasies and desires for fantasy. So it's not wishing that to come upon someone or to oneself. And that might be helpful to think through or to, to put on the table. I think that's a really important thing to have in here. We're eventually going to have an episode that is entirely about consensual non-consent, also known as rate play, um, which is certainly... Oh, shoot. I... Sorry for just using the R word, I guess. I... Oh, 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 um... no, 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 no. Uh, like, you don't have to be sorry about it. It is completely... It is completely okay. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that, that is certainly a really good example. And, like... And I mean, like, I think the other thing that's super funny, like... So this author, um, Arnie quotes this piece by Saul Friedlander, who then uh, in turn quotes Foucault, um, but about how could Nazism, which was represented by lamentable, shabby, Puritan young men by a species of Victorian spinsters, have become everywhere today, in France, in Germany, in the United States, in all the pornographic literature of the whole world, the absolute reference of eroticism. All the shoddiest aspects of the erotic imagination are now put under the sign of Nazism. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> and so, so I do think that that's something that we continually go back to. It's like, it's not like the Nazis were actually great artists or were actually like that. It's that, that aesthetic, that drive of the horror is the structure that has made it be eroticized in the way that it has. Because that's how really fucked up power functions within or often functions within our broader psyches the taboo nature of it yeah absolutely so like he goes to this like game male snm group and is contacted to a leatherman who has conflicted uh, emotions about it on one hand he was the son of holocaust survivors and respected his parents feelings on the other hand he liked to dress in leather and had even been confronted in the street by an angry jewish woman who demanded to know why he wanted to dress up like a nazi stormtrooper he didn't know what to tell her nor did he know how to explain his attraction to a greek face whose pattern reminded him of the swastika Others go as far as making the swastika a physical part of themselves. A Jewish doctor I know balked at treating a drug-addicted gay leatherman once he saw the swastika tattooed on the man's arm. When his medical ethics finally overcame his distaste, he was amazed to learn that the patient was himself a Jew. Um, but then also talking about, like, like, you can never separate, you know, the internalized anti-Semitism and the internalized homophobia from any of those acts. We can never know the entirety of the individual and it's even difficult to know ourselves because that's just how um, how we work. We're always at least partially closed off from ourselves. And so we are always in some way implicated by our desire in the fucked up power structures that we are surrounded by and the history that we come to be alive within. Yeah. Part of what makes something pleasurable is trying to understand it in relationship to everything that feeds into it. So it's why we, and this is pure Foucault right now, it's why we enjoy sitting on the couch and getting psychoanalyzed, regardless of if we believe we're going to get to like the truth of who we are. It's just very pleasurable to think, oh, because I experienced this or because I had this thing happen or because this thing's happening in society I've become this way and then I am this thing and you to identify yourself and that's very pleasurable really pleasurable experience 
pleasure in and out of the confession. As someone who, um, like my whole thing is, is reading and, and thinking about sex. I think it's incredibly difficult because so many thinkers that I do really like revere in other ways uh, and were really radical in some ways often have deeply regressive and conservative ideas about sex. And then if, and then if you really like probe their personal lives, you're like, Oh yeah, well you're, you're so repressed. And I mean, that's also just the majority of people. Uh -huh. <laughs> like, like people are so fucking repressed. I mean, especially in the U S but I think that's also just part of the structure of sexuality is that it does fall under the taboo and so the majority of people are always going to have like some constructs around like silence and shame around their desires i think that's just true yeah and the responses become stronger and stronger as the taboos start to break out so we become more repressed as there become more outlets for us to actually explore what is taboo so sorry i just had to be a Foucaultian in that moment it's also like another thing that is talked about in Bostica Toys is that like there has at different points been this connection between gayness and fascism that is just so fucking ridiculous where like it is true that uh, one of the first <laughs> I learned this on Bad Gays, a fabulous podcast, um, but Ernst Rahm, who was Hitler's second in command, um, he was an out and proud homosexual, arguably the first because the concept of homosexuality was relatively recently created. Arguably the first uh, out gay politician was a Nazi, but he was also this super aestheticized mask Nazi who also was responsible for getting a lot of people, a lot of other gays thrown in concentration camps and killed through using the fact of his homosexuality. Um, but then also, of course, because fascism always, you know, eats itself, he was purged during the Night of the Long Knives. And so, you know, he he didn't make it through. Um, as as the author puts it, uh, being gay and, not, and a Nazi is not feasible, but there are some who are stupid enough to try it. But like, if you look at, while there were certainly gay Nazis, the vast majority of gay people were in concentration camps. Like that the uh, gay men and people who we would generally think of themselves or we would think about now as like trans women, people who like transgressed gender stereotypes. It was much more about this idea of like being feminine, not being properly manly. And also like sodomy as in like being like being the bottom you would get the pink triangle and the people with pink triangles often got treated badly even by other people within concentration camps and then when concentration camps were little quote-unquote liberated by like american forces in a lot of those cases the people with pink triangles were left in the concentration camps because it was assumed that they deserved to be there. And so fascism has always been about this ultimate idealization of heterosexuality and the family. And that also can often be a very homosocial idea, right? Like just guys being guys, being all muscular together. But any sort of what we would think of as queer or gender transgression 
fascism wants to purge immediately. I mean, it's not a mistake that Mangus Hirschfeld's institute, which, you know, had the most advanced work on trans people, and he, you know, he kind of invented the idea of the homosexual as a as an identity and the idea of, of trans people as an identity. Um, mm-hmm. And all of that work was burnt by the Nazis. And like the most famous book burning pictures are the burning of the Hirschfeld Institute's work. Oh my God. I didn't know that. I did know the Weimar Republic had an amazing queer scene. That's the thing that's so scary. Like things were still not great for queer people in Berlin in pre-Nazi Germany, but they were also arguably incredibly advanced in like a lot of different ways. And so it really puts into focus how um, how tenuous any sense of like we have this freedom and now it's just ours for good that that is so tenuous, you know, mm-hmm. fascism can always rise again. Or that we should be looking to sovereign power to shore up our rights to protect us. It's ridiculous. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so ridiculous. Um, this at this point might be a non sequitur, but it's, I think it's hilarious. Um, so I'm going to let you know. And maybe we need a little bit of levity. Do you know about the underground fencing clubs that were really popular in Germany? sort of during the Nazi era, sort of pre, and then, like, at its height. I didn't. No. No, I haven't. So it was this weird kind of fencing where two men would stand, like, in front of each other, looking at each other, and they would slap each other across the face with their sabers to see who would flinch first. Just bros being bros. Mm-hmm. Just bros being bros. Just really heterosexual <laughs> just slapping um, each other with your swords you know your saber yeah and the face across the face yeah just across the face to see who would um flinch first or like who would submit first and so that's why when you see photographs of a lot of the nazis that were high in command they have scars across their cheeks mm-hmm. it's from the fencing clubs that's a, wow so that's just amazing a little historical tidbit yeah. I mean, thinking about like American fascism, you know, like the the Trumpian, the Trumpian right or like neo-Nazis, like it is so fucking homosocial. There's such a deep like disdain of women Mm -hmm. and and the the love is is this like idealization of manhood and like this Mm -hmm. hyper. um, Yeah, it's wild shit. Bless you for being an angel Just when it seemed that heaven was not for me Bless you for building a new Just when my old dream crumbled so helplessly.